Welcome back. Hemming Brainiacs to the podcast, talking about chapter 6 of Long Ago and Far Away by Mr. Hudson. I was swooped by a magpie once, and I was traumatized. How is this guy not terrified of these flocks of birds? Regarding that prompt, Tecrific said, I guess Hudson really loved birds, and his curiosity was bigger than his fear. Also, he did say, my desire to get the eggs was overmastering. He also admits to feeling terrorised when he fell down the tree. Later on, with the ostriches, they were clearly too tame for their own good, although they had a couple of survival tricks up their feathers. Oh man, you'd be scared though, wouldn't you, with an ostrich? Those things are powerful. Those things can, those things can mess you up. I guess he wasn't. Um, once when I was on my way to catch a train. I was wearing a suit as well because I was on my way to a race day, like at the races, spring string horse racing carnival. I was all suited up. I was listening to my headphones. I was crossing the railway track on my way to get on the train at a sort of, you know, outer, outer suburbs um, railway station and whack in the back of my head. And then this kind of feeling of wings and bird parts, feet and stuff like kind of tumbling from the back of my head over my forehead and all flapping and struggling. And then it kind of, you know, rolled off my head and kept flying. And because I had headphones in, I didn't hear it coming. Um, And it came from behind me. My first, the first kind of warning or, you know, the first that I knew of the bird swooping me was it hitting me in the back of the head. So I it absolutely scared the shit out of me. And it hurt because um, it went beak first into the back of my head. And then, you know, this thing tumbling over my head, it was just awful, horrible. It was a magpie. Australian magpies are little bastards, especially in springtime. They get very territorial and they swoop at you. Um, so then I was on the train with, uh, some serviettes that I got from somewhere, probably in the cafe, in the train station or something. Um, just mopping blood off the back of my head because it, it, you know, drew blood. This thing, it hit pretty hard. Um, yeah. So sitting on a train on my way to a race in a suit, <laughs> mopping blood off my head. So that's why for me, I'm like, why is this guy not terrified of these birds? Birds are awful. <laughs> Uh, but he loves them, and he's not scared of them, and they don't seem to be hurting him, so good for him. Techrific also said, His discovery that adults can and will lie was both funny and sad at the same time. I found this passage slightly bone-chilling. But in those days, people were singularly tolerant not only of injurious birds and beasts, but even of beings of their own species of predacious habits. Predacious habits. I guess we're all uh, animals at the core, aren't we? So we can be nasty creatures. God knows. Let me just scroll down here to uh, what are we up to? Chapter. That was that was chapter six, wasn't it? So we're up to chapter seven, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, sorry, scrolling, scrolling. 
Yep, chapter 6 was called Some Bird Adventures. Chapter 7 is called My First Visit to Buenos Aires. It goes like this. The happiest time of my boyhood was at that early period in a little past the age of 6 when I had my own pony to ride on and was allowed to stay on his back just as long as go as far from home as I liked. I was like... The young bird, when on first quitting the nest, it suddenly becomes conscious of its power to fly. My early flying days were, however, soon interrupted when my mother took me on my first visit to Buenos Aires, that is to say, the first I remember, as I must have been taken there once before as an infant in arms. Um, in uh, arms, since we lived too far from town for any missionary clergyman to travel all that distance just to baptise a little baby. Buenos Aires is now the wealthiest, most populous, Europeanized city in South America. What it was like at that time, these glimpses into a far past, will serve to show. Coming as a small boy of an exceptionally impressionable mind, from that green plain where people lived the simple pastoral life, everything I saw in the city impressed me deeply, and the sights which impressed me the most are as vivid in my mind today as they ever were. I was a solitary little boy in my rambles about the streets, for though I had a young brother who was my only playmate, he was not yet five, and too small to keep me company in my walks, nor did I mind having no one with me. Very, very early in my boyhood, I had acquired the habit of going about alone to amuse myself in my own way, and it was only after years, when my age was about twelve, that my mother told me how anxious this singularity in me used to make her. She would miss me when looking out to see what the children were doing, and I would be called and searched for, to be found hidden away somewhere in the plantation. Then she began to keep an eye on me, and when I was observed stealing off, she would secretly follow and watch me, standing motionless among the tall weeds or under the trees by the half-hour, staring at vacancy. This distressed her very much. Then, to her great relief and joy, she discovered that I was there with a motive which she could understand and appreciate that I was watching some living thing, an insect perhaps, but often a bird. A pair of little scarlet flycatchers, building a nest of lichen on a peach tree, or some such beautiful thing. And as she loved all living things herself, she was quite satisfied that I was not going queer on my head, for that was what she had been fearing. The strangeness of the streets was a little too much for me at the start, and I remember that on, my, on first venturing out by myself, a little distance from home, I got lost. In despair of ever finding my way back, I began to cry, hiding my face against a post at a street corner, and was there soon sounded, surrounded by quite a number of passers-by. Then a policeman came up with a brass buttons on his blue coat and a sword at his side, and taking me by the arm, he asked me in a commanding voice where I lived, the name of the street and the number of the house. I couldn't tell him, then I began to get frightened on account of his sword and big black moustache and loud rasping voice, and suddenly ran away, and after running for about six or eight minutes, found myself back at home to my surprise and joy. The house where we stayed with English friends was near the front, or what was then the front, that part of the city which faced the Plata River, a river which was like the sea with no visible shore beyond, and like the sea it was tidal, and differed only in its colour, which was a muddy red instead of blue or green. 
The house was roomy and, like most of the houses at that date, had a large courtyard paved with red tiles and planted with small lemon trees and flowering shrubs of various kinds. The streets were straight and narrow, paved with round boulder stones the size of a football, the pavements with brick or flagstones, and so narrow they would hardly admit of more than two persons walking abreast. Along the pavements on each side of the street were rows of posts placed at a distance of ten yards apart. These strange-looking rows of posts which foreigners laughed to see were no doubt the remains of yet ruder times when ropes of hide were stretched along the side of the pavements to protect the foot passengers from runaway horses, wild cattle driven by wild men from the plains and other dangers of the narrow streets. As they were then paved, the streets must have been the noisiest in the world on account of the immense number of big springless carts in them, Imagine the thunderous racket made by a long procession of these carts when they were returning empty and the drivers, as was often the case, urged their horses to a gallop and they bumped and thundered over the big round stones. Just opposite the house we stayed at there was a large church, one of the largest of the numerous churches of the city, and one of my... whoops... One of my most vivid memories relates to a great annual festival at the church, that of the Patron Saint's Day. It had been open to worshippers all day, but the chief service was held about three o'clock in the afternoon. At all events, it was at that hour when a great attendance of fashionable people took place. I watched them as they came in couples, families and small groups. In every case, the ladies, beautifully dressed, attended by their cavaliers, At the door of the church, the gentleman would make his bow and withdraw to the street before the building, where a sort of outdoor gathering was formed of all those who had come as escorts to the ladies, and where they would remain until the service was over. The crowd in the street grew and grew until there were about four or five hundred gentlemen, mostly young, in the gathering, all standing in small groups, conversing in an animated way so that the street was filled with the loud humming sound of their blended voices. These men were all natives, all of the good or upper class of the native society, and all dressed exactly alike in the fashion of that time. It was their dress and the uniform appearance of so large a number of persons, most of them with young, handsome, animated faces, that fascinated me and kept me on the spot and gazing at them until the big bells began to thunder at the conclusion of the service and the immense concourse of gaily dressed ladies swarmed out and immediately the meeting broke up, the gentlemen hurrying back to meet them. They all wore silk hats and the glossiest black broadcloth, not even a pair of trousers of any other shade was seen and all wore the scarlet silk of fine cloth waistcoat, which at that period was considered the right thing for every citizen of the Republic to wear, also in lieu of buttonhole, a scarlet ribbon pinned to the lapel of the coat. It was a pretty sight, and the concourse reminded me of a flock of military starlings, a black or dark plumaged bird with a scarlet breast, one of my feathered favourites. My rambles were almost always on the front, since I could walk there a mile or two from home, north or south, without getting lost, always with the vast expanse of water on one hand, with many big ships looking dim in the distance, and numerous lighters or belanders coming up from them with cargoes of merchandise which they unloaded into carts, these going out a quarter of a mile in the shallow water to meet them. 
Then there were the water carts going and coming in scores and hundreds for at that period there was no water supply to the houses and every householder had to buy muddy water by the bucket at his own door from the waterman. One of the most attractive spots to me was the congregating place of the Lavenderas, south of my street, here on the broad beach, under the cliff, one saw a whiteness like a cloud covering the ground for a space of about a third of a mile, and the cloud, as one drew near, resolved itself into innumerable garments, sheets and quilts and other linen pieces fluttering from long lines and covering the low rocks washed clean by the tide and the stretches of green turf between. It was the spot where the washerwomen were allowed to wash all the dirty linen of Bernaceres in public. All over the ground, the women, mostly negresses, were seen on their knees beside the pools among the rocks, furiously scrubbing and pounding away at their work, and like all negresses, they were exceedingly vociferous, and their loud gabble, mingled with yells and shrieks of laughter, reminded me of the hubbub made by a great concourse of gulls, ibises, godwits, geese, and other noisy waterfowl on some marshy lake. It was a wonderfully animated scene and drew me to it again and again. I found, however, that it was necessary to go warily among these women as they looked with suspicion at idling boys, and sometimes when I picked my way among the spread garments I was sharply ordered off. Then, too, they often quarrelled over their right to certain places and spaces among themselves. Then, very suddenly, their hilarious gabble would change to wild cries of anger and torrents of abuse. By and by I discovered that their greatest rages and worst language were when certain young gentlemen of the upper classes visited the spot to amuse themselves by baiting the lavenderas. The young gentlemen would saunter about in an absent-minded manner and presently walk right on to a beautifully embroidered and belaced night dress and other dainty garments spread out to dry on the sward or rock and standing on it, calmly proceeded to take out and light a cigarette. Instantly the black virago would be on her feet, confronting him and pouring out a torrent of her foulest expressions and deadliest curses. He, in a pretended rage, would reply in even worse language that would put her on her mettle, for now all her friends and foes scattered about the ground would suspend their work to listen with all their ears, and the contest of words growing louder and fiercer would last until the combatants were both exhausted and unable to invent any more new or horrible expressions of opprobrium to hurl at each other. Then the insulted young gentleman would kick the garment away in a fury and hurling the unfinished cigarette in his adversary's face would work, walk off with his nose in the air. I laughed to recall these unseemly word battles on the beach, but they were shocking to me when I first heard them as a small innocent-minded boy, and it only made the case worse when I was assured that the young gentleman was only acting a part, that the extreme anger he exhibited, which might have served as an excuse for using such language, was all pretense. Another favourite pastime of these same idle, rich young gentlemen offended me as much as the one I have related. The night watchman, called Serenos, of that time interested me in an extraordinary way. When night came, it appeared that the fierce policemen, with their swords and brass buttons, were no longer needed to safeguard the people, and their place in the streets was taken by a quaint, 
frowsy-looking body of men, mostly old, some almost decrepit, wearing big cloaks and carrying staffs and heavy iron lanterns with a tallow candle alight inside. But what a pleasure it was to lie awake at night and listen to their voices calling the hours. The calls began at the stroke of eleven, and then from beneath the window would come the wonderful long drawling call of Las On Sihan Da Do I Si Re, no, which means eleven of the clock and all serene. But if clouded, the concluding word would be Nublado, and so on, according to the weather. From all the streets, from all over the town, the long-drawn calls would float to my listening ears with infinite variety in the voices, the high and shrill, the falsetto, the harsh, raucous note like the caw of a carrion crow, the solemn, booming bass, and then some fine, rich, pure voice that soared heavenwards above all the others and was like the pealing notes of an organ. I loved that poor night watchman and their cries, and it grieved me, my little soft heart, to hear that it was confused fine sport by the rich young gentlemen to sally forth at night and do battle with them, and to deprive them of their staffs and lanterns which they took home and kept as trophies. <clears throat> Another human phenomenon which annoyed and shocked my tender mind, like that of the contests on the beach between young gentlemen and washerwomen, was the multitude of beggars which infested the town. These were not like our dignified beggar on horseback with his red poncho, spurs and tall straw hat, who rode to your gate and, having received his tribute, blessed you and rode away to the next estancia. These city beggars on the pavement were the most brutal, even fiendish-looking men I had ever seen. Most of them were old soldiers who, having survived, served for their 10, 15 or 20 years, according to the nature of the crime for which they had been condemned to the army, had been discharged or thrown out to live like carrion hawks on what they could pick up 20 times a day. At least you would hear the iron gate opening from the courtyard into the street, swung open, followed by the call or shout of the beggar demanding charity in the name of God, Outside, you could not walk far without being confronted by one of these men who would boldly square himself in front of you on the narrow pavement and beg for alms. If you had no change and said, Perdon, Perdios, he would scowl and let you pass. But if you looked annoyed or disgruntled or ordered him out of the way or pushed by without a word, word he would glare at you with a concentrated rage which seemed to say, Oh, to you, to have you down at my mercy, bound hand and foot, a sharp knife in my hand, and this would be followed by a blast of the most horrible language. One day I witnessed a very strange thing, the action of a dog by the waterside. It was evening and the beach was forsaken, cartmen, fishermen, boatmen, all gone, and I was the only idler left on the rocks, but the tide was coming in, rolling quite big waves on the, sh- on the rocks, and the novel sight of the waves, the freshness, the joy of it, kept me at that spot standing on one of the outermost rocks, not yet washed over by the water. By and by, a gentleman, followed by a big dog, came down on the beach and stood at a distance of forty or fifty yards from me while the dog bounded forward over the flat, slippery rocks and through pools of water until he came to my side and, sitting on the edge of the rock, began gazing intently down at the water. He was a big, shaggy, round-headed animal with a greyish coat with some patches of light reddish colour on it, what his breed was, I cannot say, but he looked somewhat like a sheepdog or an otterhound. Suddenly he plunged in, quite disappearing from sight, but quickly reappeared with a big shad of about three and a half or four pounds weight in his jaws. Climbing on the rock, 
He dropped the fish, which he did not appear to have injured much, as it began floundering about in an exceedingly lively manner. I was astonished and looked back at the dog's master, but there he stood in the same place, smoking and paying no attention to what his animal was doing. Again the dog plunged in and brought out a second big fish and dropped it on the flat rock, and again and again he dived until there were five big shads of floundering about on the wet rock, and likely soon to be washed back into the water. The shad is a common fish in the plata and the best to eat of all the fishes, resembling the salmon in its rich flavour and it's eagerly watched for when it comes up from the sea by the Buenos Aires fishermen, just as our fishermen watched for mackerel on our coasts. But on this evening the beach was deserted by everyone, watches included, and the fish came and swarmed along the rocks and there was no one to catch them, not even some poor hungry idler to pounce upon and carry off the five fishes the dog had captured. One by one I saw them washed back into the water and presently the dog, hearing his master whistling to him, bounded away. For many years after this incident I failed to find anyone who had ever seen or heard of a dog catching fish. Eventually, in reading, I met with an account of fishing dogs in Newfoundland and other countries. One other strange adventure met with on the front remains to be told. It was about 11 o'clock in the morning and I was on the parade walking north pausing from time to time to look over the sea wall to watch the flocks of small birds that came to feed on the beach below presently my attention was drawn to a young man walking on before me pausing and peering to from time to time over the wall and when he did so throwing something at the small birds I ran on and overtook him and was rather taken aback at his wonderfully fine appearance he was like one of the gentlemen of the gathering before the church described a few pages back, and wore a silk hat and a fashionable black coat and trousers and scarlet silk waistcoat. He was also a remarkably handsome young gentleman, with a golden brown curly beard and moustache and dark liquid eyes that studied my face with a half-amused curiosity when I looked up at him. <clears throat> In one hand he carried a washed leather bag, by its handle, and holding a pebble in his right hand, he watched the birds, the small parties of crested song sparrows, yellow house sparrows, siskins, field finches and other kinds, and from time to time he would hurl a pebble at the bird. He had singled out forty yards down below as on the rocks. I did not see him actually hit a bird, but his precision was amazing, for almost invariably the missile thrown from such a distance at so minute an object appeared to graze the feathers and to miss killing by but a fraction of an inch. I followed him for some distance, my wonder and curiosity growing every minute to see such a superior-looking person engaged in such a pastime. For it is a fact that the natives do not persecute small birds. On the contrary, they despise the aliens in the land who shoot and trap them. Besides, if he wanted small birds for any purpose, why did he not? Why did he try to get them by throwing pebbles at them? As he did not order me off, but looked in a kindly way at me every little while, with a slight smile on his face, I at length ventured to tell him that he would never get a bird that way, that it would be impossible at that distance to hit one with a small pebble. Oh, no, not impossible, he returned, smiling and walking on, still with an eye on the rocks. Well, you haven't hit one yet, I was bold enough to say, and at that he stopped, and putting his finger and thumb in his waistcoat pocket, he pulled out a dead male siskin and put it in my hands. This was the bird called Goldfinch by the English resident La Plata, and to the Spanish it is also Goldfinch. It is, however, a siskin, Chrysomistris magellancia. 
and has a velvet black head and the rest of its plumage being black, green and shining yellow. It was one of my best loved birds, but I had never had one in my hand, dead or alive, before and now its wonderful unimagined loveliness, its graceful form and its exquisite, exquisitely pure flower-like yellow hue affected me with a delight so keen that I could hardly keep from tears. After gloating a few moments over it, I touching it with my fingertips and opening the little black and gold wings, I looked up pleadingly and begged him to let me keep it. He smiled and shook his head. He would not waste his breath talking. All his energy was to be spent in hurling pebbles at the other lovely little birds. Ursino, will you not give it to me? I pleaded still, and then with sudden hope. Are you going to sell it? He laughed, and taking it from my hand, put it back in his waistcoat pocket. Then, with a pleasant smile and a nod to say that the interview was now over, he went on his way. Standing on the spot where he had left me, and still bitterly regretting that I had failed to get the bird, I watched him until he disappeared from sight in the distance, walking towards the suburb of Palermo, and a mystery he remains to this day. The one and only Argentine gentleman, a citizen of the Athens of South America, amusing himself by killing little birds with pebbles, but I do not know that it was an amusement. He had perhaps in some wild moment made a vow to kill so many siskins in that way, or a bet to prove his skill in throwing a pebble, or he might have been practicing a cure for some mysterious deadly malady prescribed by some wandering physician from Baghdad or Isfahan. Or more probable still, some heartless, soulless woman was in love with, he was in love with, had imposed this fantastical task on him. <coughs> Excuse me. Perhaps the most wonderful thing I saw during that first eventful visit to the capital was the famed Don Eusbio, the court jester or fool of the president or dictator Rosas, the Nero of South America, who lived in his palace at Palermo just outside the city. I had been sent with my sisters and little brother to spend the day at the house of the Anglo-Argentine family in another part of the town, and we were in the large courtyard playing with the children of the house, when someone opened a window above us and called out, Donna's Bio, that conveyed nothing to me, but the little boys of the house knew what it meant. It meant that if we went quickly out to the street, we might catch a glimpse of the great man in all his glory. At all events, they jumped up, flinging their toys away, and rushed to the street door, and we after them. Coming out, we found quite a crowd of lookers-on, and then down the street, in his general's dress, for it was one of the dictator's little jokes to make his fool a general, all scarlet with a big scarlet three-cornered hat surmounted by an immense aigrette of scarlet plumes, came Donnersbio. He marched along with tremendous dignity, his sword at his side, and twelve soldiers also in scarlet, his bodyguard walking six on each side of him, with drawn swords in their hands. We gazed with joyful excitement at this splendid spectacle, and it made it all the more thrilling when one of the boys whispered in my ear that if any person in the crowd laughed or made insulting or rude remark, he would be instantly cut to pieces by the guard, and they looked truculent enough for anything. The great roses himself I did not see, but it was something to have had this momentary sight of General Eusbio, his fool on the eve of his fall after a reign of over twenty years, during which he proved himself one of the bloodiest as well as the most original-minded of the Cordillos and dictators, and altogether perhaps the greatest of those who have climbed into the power in this continent of republics and revolutions.
All right, there we go. Chapter 7. The big city. The big smoke. That's cool. I love how even when he does visit the city and describe the city to us, it's mostly birds. <laughs> uh, but hey, the guy's got a... Uh, the guy's got a, an obsession. So what can we do? All right. <clears throat> Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.